Hello, Michael Fullylove here. In this episode, we're talking about the United States, Russia, Ukraine, China, and Australia with one of the world's most influential statesmen. As a result of this war, Russia has lost the ability to threaten Europe with conventional attack because it's been demonstrated that NATO can not only stop a conventional attack, but reverse it. And so that the military position on which Russia has been able to count in the entire post-World War II period, he has already lost. The whole border now between Russia and the West is a NATO border. And the outcome for Ukraine, the only security guarantees Ukraine can achieve for the most effective is some kind of membership in NATO. So the Russian strategic position is already fundamentally changed. Dr. Henry Kissinger is my guest for this, the final episode for 2022 of the Director's Chair. With Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine, the expansion of Chinese influence in the Pacific and the continued effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, the world is an increasingly messy place. Fortunately for us, though, my guest today on the Director's Chair is known for his clarity of thought. He is Dr. Henry Kissinger. Dr. Kissinger served as National Security Advisor to Presidents Nixon and Ford. He also served as the 56th U.S. Secretary of State. For several years, he held both offices simultaneously. He is perhaps the most influential scholar-statesman of the 20th century, and for many, he has set the gold standard of analysis in international relations. I've had a bit to do with Dr. Kissinger this past year, as we are both commissioners of the CSIS Kumir Foundation's Global Dialogue. I'm recording this podcast today in New York City, while Dr. Kissinger is at his home in Connecticut. Henry Kissinger, thank you for joining me on the Director's Chair. Great pleasure to be here. Dr. Kissinger, let me begin by asking you to assess President Biden's foreign policy at the halfway mark of his first term. And let me make an argument to you that perhaps the administration gets less credit than it deserves. A friend, a barracker of the administration would say that it has restored America's reputation after the self-harm of the Trump era. It's played a blinder on Ukraine, helping Kyiv to defend itself while managing its alliances adroitly. It has returned to the playing field on climate change and other global issues. It is competing with China without allowing that competition to spill over into conflict. What do you think? I think he has been quite effective. And I agree with your assessment. Uh, I don't quite agree on the China policy. I think mm. that was perhaps excessively confrontational. But it's come to the right point and where they are now. Uh, it's uh, a position that I, that I support. And the other points you made, uh, I substantially agree with. Let me ask you, your latest book, Leadership, Six Studies in World Strategy, was published in April this year. And you examine six leaders from the last century Conrad Adenauer, Richard Nixon, Charles de Gaulle, Lee Kuan Yew, Margaret Thatcher and Anwar Sadat, all of whom you knew personally, in the case of several of them worked with intimately. Let me ask you, do you believe that history is made predominantly by great individuals like this or by vast 
impersonal forces? Obviously, it's a mix of the two, but how important are the qualities and the character of the individuals at the moment? Of course, this is a debate that has gone on forever, whether whether they are objective forces or individuals. I would say that they are, of course, objective forces which the individual cannot create and necessarily alter. Uh, but they have to be interpreted through somebody's analysis. And when the moment of decision comes, there is very often disagreement about the nature of the issues, the definition of the challenge. So that is one role of a leader. And the other role of a leader is to define objectives that take a society from where it is to where it hasn't been. Mm-hmm. And that enables it to relate itself to what come up as day-to-day problems that by themselves do not necessarily present the entire picture. So I would say to understand history, both efforts are needed to understand what the objective forces were but in the end, they are shaped by the leadership of the society. Let me ask you about the two men who are leading the, the two countries involved in the Ukraine war, the two protagonists, if I can, and ask you to reflect on their characters and the qualities that has been revealed over the course of this war. First of all, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky. Um but for his decision to stay in Kyiv on that first weekend, if uh, I think we can say that Ukraine might well have succumbed. If he had chosen a ride rather than ammunition, we would be looking at a very different um, circumstance. As you know, we hosted him at the Lowy Institute in October and he was very impressive. What are your thoughts on President Zelensky's leadership? Well, he is an extraordinary figure for Ukraine. There has not been a type like him in Ukrainian history that I can discover, certainly not in post-war. And I fully agree with you that if he had not stayed in Kyiv and they had provided a focal point for resistance, the cause of recent events might well have, would have been substantially different. The challenge that he presents will be whether the qualities that were needed to rally the society Mm. will serve him as well when it comes to making peace, which will require some sort of negotiation Mm -hmm. and probably some modification of the absolute position that Ukraine, that he put forward Mm. and that he put forward because he does not believe, and I understand that, that for the leader of a resistance movement against a foreign invader, Mm. it is appropriate that he announces concessions before there is a need to determine what the ultimate balances will be. I'll come back to the end game in the Ukraine war, but first, can I ask you about President Vladimir Putin? You've known him for a long time. How has his decision to go to war 
how has his conduct of the war affected your assessment of Putin? Before his decision to go to war, my encounters with him have always been on substantive issues. It has not been a personal friendship or any personal relationship. I have had periodically conversations with him about political and strategic issues. And my judgment of him was that he was a character out of Dostoevsky with a very special feeling for the, for the nature of the Russian society that has survived uh, turbulence, uprisings, challenges, and has at the end always managed to get through. And I thought he was a very good analyst of the international situation. I think his invasion of Ukraine qualified that judgment of mine because it was... Uh, I, I had some sympathy for opposing membership of Ukraine in NATO uh, because that would have meant, and it will mean because that's how it will wind up, that the whole area between Berlin and Moscow that was under Russian tutelage in the Cold War would have become part of NATO. And in the very region through which so many invasions of Russia had been carried out. So I did not think it was a wise decision to offer that membership. But its reaction was totally out of proportion to the provocation. Mm. The idea of attacking a sovereign state in peacetime conditions without warning for the purpose of attaching that state to your own as some kind of a satellite or whatever the outcome was, uh, that was an unreasonable decision that needed to be resisted and whose outcome cannot be what Putin uh, proclaimed because that would have changed the whole pattern of policy, of foreign policy in, in Europe. Before that, I thought he had a rather cold-blooded, very national-oriented view of Russia, but it also reflected realities of Russian history. I do not just, there's no justification mm. for the last phase. Given the net effect of the invasion so far has been such a serious diminution of Russian influence and prestige and the increased solidarity within NATO, indeed the likely enlargement of NATO, I think you, you implied a minute ago that you thought a NATO membership for Ukraine was inevitable. How, how much of a strategic failure was that decision to invade Ukraine when you look at other self-inflicted harm by statesmen over the centuries? How would you position it? Oh, it was a major, it, among the major mistaken judgments, if you put it into a, a, a historical context. Russia has, after as a result of this war, it has lost the ability to threaten Europe with conventional attack because it's been demonstrated that NATO can not only stop a conventional attack, but reverse it. Mm. Uh, and 
so that the military position on which Russia has been able to count in the entire post-World War II period, he has already lost. And the whole border now between Russia and the West is a NATO border with Sweden and Finland entering NATO as a result of the invasion of Ukraine. And the outcome for Ukraine, wherever the lines are drawn, Mm. The outcome will be that the only security guarantees NATO Ukraine can achieve, or the most effective, is some kind of membership in uh, in NATO. Mm. So the Russian strategic position mm. is already fundamentally changed. And after the outcome of the war, whatever it is, uh, the whether it is possible to reintegrate. Russia into a European system mm. is going to be the challenge, or whether Russia will play with Asian challenges vis a vis Europe. Dr. Kissinger, let me ask you about Asia. Let, let me come to China. You didn't include any Chinese leaders in your book. What, what are your impressions of Xi Jinping? And in particular, the the softening we've seen since the party congress, the more emollient meetings with some Western leaders, the, the relaxation of the COVID zero approach. Is this a, a tactical shift, do you think, from Beijing or a strategic one? I have believed all along, based on my acquaintance with Chinese leaders, that the difference that people see between, say, Xi and Deng Xiaoping is determined by the Chinese leaders' assessment of the overall balance of power, and that in the period of Deng Xiaoping, uh, he made a correct assessment of an imbalance of power in favor of the West, and drew the conclusions from it of a more flexible policy. But he is leader in a more complex period in which China appeared to be much stronger. But I, it is my guess or my belief that Xi is adapting Chinese policy to his need of, to his view of the need of the Chinese state, which are in any event interpreted in a different way than Western nations do. I think that Xi was never in favor of all-out confrontation, but he will adjust his policy to the conduct of the surrounding world to some considerable degree. And so it will always be necessary that there be no imbalance of of power in favor of China. And if he perceives that the West is weak or indecisive or unable to analyze its situations properly, then he will be more difficult to deal with. But he's quite capable, as he has now shown. Now, if the question is, how long will that last? Well, that depends in part on our conduct, and it depends in part on whether we can make clear that we are against hegemony by any group, but we don't insist on hegemony for ourselves. In other words, whether it is possible for the West at one and the same time 
to show adequate capability to defend its interests and to do it in a manner that keeps in mind for both sides that technology has reached a level and combined with artificial intelligence makes a, a war between major high-tech state enterprise in a suicidal joint effort. So whether the two net group, whether China and the West can both come to that understanding simultaneously. That will be the challenge of the next decade. We are making useful openings in that direction now. May I ask you about China's relations with Russia? Of course, under your hand, rapprochement with China helped to manage the Cold War, but also open up some distance between Beijing and Moscow. We had the No Limits Partnership declared between Russia and China earlier this year. But of course, the mistakes that Russia has made have diminished its prestige in the eyes of, of most of the world, I would say, even if there's still some sympathy in some parts of the world for Russia. But it's, its prestige as a great power and perhaps its utility as an ally or a friend to China has lessened. Where do you think China-Russia relations will go in the next few years? At the beginning of this of this Ukrainian operation, it looked as if China and Russia were sharing objectives, and that there was even some Chinese attempt to influence Europe via Russia. Uh, I think that is not now possible and has been substantially abandoned. I don't think that Russia and China are natural partners. Mm. A big slice of Siberia was acquired by Russia from China in the second half of the 19th century, so fairly recently. And uh, countries have been threatening each other for a big slice of the post-World War II period. So I believe that Russia and China will pursue their national policies as they conceive them, but that they will not, that the alliance between the two of them will not be a significant factor in the next phase of international policy. As you know, Australia has been subjected to a series of trade blockages and sanctions by China in recent years, as well as the silent treatment. However, recently, the new Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, met with President Xi Jinping. What is your advice to Australia, a liberal democracy, in managing relations with the People's Republic, which is at once our leading trading partner, but also a giant power run by a Leninist political party that has recently attempted a campaign of economic coercion against us? What should be the settling point, do you think, for Australia's China policy? China represents a challenge to Australia by its magnitude. And Australia is a Western state in a distant corner of the universe. So it has very special requirements for its security. Australia is bound to and should look for its security to close relations with the countries of Europe. But 
it should also do it within a framework that does not look like a military challenge to China. And that's a subdivision of what is the overall issue. I, as I said, I believe that no country should have hegemony in Asia. And that is a policy we must carry out. Uh, on the other hand, it should not be done in a provocative manner that looks as if we were trying to change the internal situation. However, in China, however much we might differ about its nature, Australia has walked that way very well up to now. Uh, and I'm happy to see that she has reversed the attitude towards Australia because it had become symbolic for threats that China might carry out towards other countries located in Asia. So I am basically consider Australia an important ally of the United States. This relationship must continue to be strengthened and is being strengthened. Uh, but a diplomacy needs to be developed that does not explain it as a challenge to China, but as a natural need for Australian independence. And I think Australia has no great difficulty pursuing that sort of a policy. In fact, it has pursued it quite effectively. And if now China has withdrawn some of the pressures that it put on Australia, which should not be an admissible part of the international system to begin with, then the outcome looks to me very positive. Let me ask you about climate change. How do you see climate change affecting world order? One of the big challenges of this period, growing challenges of this period, is that technology has run beyond the framework of the nation state and that the issues created by the growth of technology in many fields that cannot be overcome on a purely national basis. And the fact of climate change that it's not really substantially disputed is one of these issues. And so the subject of climate change, therefore, lends itself to a kind of international diplomacy that should, over a period of time, ease tensions. But beyond that leads to the deeper problem that the technology has become so vast and in some respects so threatening that it needs to be dealt with by a kind of international dialogue. And this will have to spread even into the field of military activities. You once said that one has to live with a sense of the inevitability of tragedy. Is that sense growing stronger in your mind? Or as you approach your 100th birthday, are there grounds for optimism, do you think? I think there is a disparity between the vastness of the challenges and the preparation of the leadership in many countries. The contemporary issues are so complex and the public debates are so intense, aided by the 
speed of communications which technology enables, that leaders no longer or have a great difficulty gaining the historical perspective and the philosophical perspective that is needed to set goals mm. for the essence of the problems. And so there is perhaps an excessive tendency to concentrate on symptoms rather than on underlying problems. In that sense, I'm concerned about the evolution of things. On a day-to-day -day basis, the immediate problems seem to me getting more under control than they were, say, six months ago. Mm. But in a deeper sense, uh, whether if the question is whether we are capable or reason to be optimistic about how we handle the challenges that are arising, I would be on the pessimistic side, with, however, the qualification that if you think of statesmanship, you have to say that it is the duty of statesmen to overcome tragedy and not to wallow in it. And finally, Dr. Kissinger, if you were preparing an afterword to your book, Leadership, could you nominate, would, you, would there be one leader on the world stage now that you think might measure up for inclusion in that book? Is there one leader where you see the wisdom and the, the sense of history and the ability not to wallow in the tragedy but to try to challenge it? Contemporary leaders have to be judged more by the, their rhetoric than by their achieve, final achievements because they are all at the beginning of a process that will take years. I think President Macron of France very often states issue, issues in a way that I find compatible. But whether he'll make it into a book 10 years from now, uh, well, I'm not, I'll be, I won't be around to make that judgment. Well, I'm not too sure about that, Dr. Kissinger, but I am sure that by citing President Macron, you're going to significantly increase our listenership of this podcast in Paris, including at the Elysee. So, Dr. Kissinger, thank you very much for your time today, and thank you for, for speaking with me about the sweep of history, about leadership versus objective factors, about the United States, Russia, Ukraine, China, and Australia. Dr. Kissinger, thank you very much for joining me on the Director's Chair. Thank you. I think you're doing a wonderful job at the Lowe Institute, and I knew the founder of it, and it's, it's a wonderful evolution of what he tried to do. The Director's Chair is a podcast from the Lowy Institute, produced on Gadigal land. The producers for this episode were Shane McLeod and Josh Godding, with research by David Valance. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review in your podcast app. You can find all our past episodes at our website, lowyinstitute.org slash directorschair. I'm Michael Fulilove. Thanks for listening. <laughs>